On this week's Devils in the Details, Eric Ten Hag has mentioned rest defense as a key consideration for this United side throughout the season, and yet we haven't covered it in as much detail as we'd have liked to on this podcast. And so today, we welcome friend of the pod, John McKenzie, to help us explain what rest defense actually is, why it's increasingly important in the modern game, and how Eric Ten Hag used it throughout his first season at Manchester United. case. I'll be honest, before this season, I barely even knew what rest defense was. Feels like we've wanted to do this for a long while. Are you ready? Yeah, I think so. I think I think we've got some some really nice talking points today and put a lot put a lot of time and research into this one. So excited to, to do this with John. Lots of time and research, but we're still only two football loving podcasters, and so we needed some more firepower to tackle such a universal yet rarely spoken about concept in a public space. And so personally, I can't think of anyone better to welcome than our friend and world football tactics god, John McKenzie. John, welcome for the third time to Devils in the Details. How does it feel to come on a Manchester United podcast for three times in one season? Yeah, I feel as though I'm letting myself down a little bit. Um, I think... I may have done more Manchester United podcasts this season than Leeds United podcasts, which is a real indictment of how far I've fallen. But I always enjoy coming on and chatting to you guys. So I'm really in, excited, actually, to talk about rest defence because I still feel as though that is a Wild West area when it comes to football tactics in general. So interested to have watched some games back with you guys and also to have a bit of a chat about what is going on some of the principles that are involved and I think also to admit that we're 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 very much ingenued when it comes to the this this idea of rest defense so really interested to hear what we come up with today yeah so to clue everyone else in um we've watched a couple of games together all of us in in different pairings at different points I think we've probably been through the better part of like six or seven full matches now um and yeah, we'll start with a basic question, I guess, and something to for those who don't actually know what rest defenses or aren't familiar with the topic. Uh, John, could you help us with what rest defense actually is and where this actually goes back to? Yeah, whenever I'm asked about rest defense, I always like to go back to a etymological um, point, which is that rest defense is a, an English translation of a German word, Restverteidigung, which means rest defense. But the the first word rest that we consider i think usually to mean like relaxing or or chilling out actually isn't the best translation of that german word rest even though it is the same word because actually it means the other use of the word rest which is everything that's left over the remainder um so the the big idea behind rest defense is what's the rest of the team doing to defend in certain scenarios and those scenarios are usually in the um, in the possession phase. So the simplest definition, I think, of rest defence that I can come up with is what are the things that you're doing defensively when you're in possession of the ball? What are the uh, ideas that you're wanting to introduce to your team to make sure that when you are attacking, if you do turn the ball over, what principles are in play in order to make your life easier, to prevent the opposition from being able to counterattack easily, being able to actually manipulate the space that can often be left open by attacking teams, uh, and all of that comes under the remit, I think, of of rest defence principles. But I, I think the the big overall 
picture um, idea that I want to leave everyone with in this podcast is that when you start thinking about rest defense principles, you become super aware of how it's easy to think of different phases of play, particularly in terms of when the team has possession of the ball, when the team doesn't have possession of the ball. Actually, in the modern game of football, those phases of play are much closer than people might realise. And so I think focusing on rest defence is a really good way of being able to actually recognise the, just the extent to which the modern game has has moved on, perhaps, in, in terms of some of the ideas that we're, we're seeing there. Yeah, I think that's a really good start. And um, you, you already clued into why it's really important in the modern game, but I think it's becoming something that is increasingly mandatory uh, for top teams to have in, in very specific um, in very specific detail to have rest defensive principles that allow them to um, attack. And I'd say a key core focus of, uh, of sides in the possession era has been breaking down the opposition. Uh, but in particular, be able to... Uh, have attempts towards breaking down the opposition while also covering for the event that uh, they're going to get at you in attacking transitions or your defensive transitions and be able to create chances if you're not optimally prepared for that. Um, And I think even more to the point, Eric Tan Hag has talked about it a fair bit this season. Uh, I know you had a tweet last week alluding to this, right? Um, And the the first time I spotted it was after the Aston Villa loss when he said, um, United actually played Villa again that week and then beat them right after. And he said, how close you come to your opponent's goal, the more freedom is coming. And while attacking, what is really important is rest defense. That balance of rest defense, again, is 100% discipline. If not, you get killed like on Sunday. Um, and so I think this season we've seen a lot more rest defense. And I think it's been a lot more talked about in United's fears. Maybe a good way to start would be to talk about how some other top sides that have actually won the Premier League have done it. Um, do we maybe do we maybe want to talk a little bit about Man City and how they do rest defense, uh, and then we can there go into United and what they do. Yeah, and I think the big story of the season for Manchester City has been focused around the concept of rest defense, and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that they brought in Erling Haaland, who is one of the most elite goal finishers we've perhaps ever seen in world football. Uh, but the big thing with with Haaland is that he works against a lot of the principles that Guardiola seems to work with. So that's the idea of trying to minimise risk, um, trying to control games as much as possible. When you bring in a player like Erling Haaland, you're starting, you're starting to work in, um, I, I guess, contradiction to some of those ideas because when you have a player like Haaland who's such a cheat code, is such a dangerous goal scorer, I think it is worth your while to maybe um, go a little bit more relaxed on some of your principles if you're in, interested in control and, uh, and making sure that you're not uh, leaving yourself open. Because if you can get into these games where you are going to become quite transitional with a player like Erling Haaland, you're, you're often well set up to come out the better of those uh, in those sorts of battles. But I think that the lesson that, that Guardiola has, has learned this season has been that if you have a player like Haaland, make the most of them. Uh, but make sure that you are covering yourself uh, with um, with players who can actually mitigate some of the problems that might emerge from having a player like Haaland. So what we've seen this season is, is Pep use this system where he's essentially got five centre-backs in his rest defence unit. So what we've been seeing, particularly in the second half of the season, but we've seen it in previous seasons from from Guardiola, is this idea that you, you can um, invert a full-back or invert uh, a player from 
well, I mean, we can talk about the the John Stones phenomenon if you want, but um, I guess we you would not nominally talk about that as a pushing a centre back forward so that you um, you're able to um, have an extra player in the midfield area. Um, but they end up with this unit of five, usually in a in a with a with a situational back three in this season, uh, and then two pivot players in front of that. In the previous season, we saw them play with two centre backs with one pivot player, but then two inverting fullbacks, or maybe even one. Uh, but you can have a little bit of flexibility there. But the the big idea is, okay, on the one hand, you want to be able to control possession of the ball, and I think that was a big part of it in previous seasons. But this season, I think there's been a real uh, defensive aspect to that, which is making sure that you're blocking out. Uh, the central channels um, so that if you do turn the ball over further up the field your players are really well set up to be able to defend those moments so yeah I think we've been seeing Man City do do this sort of thing for for a while um, uh, I think there's other coaches who've done similar things as well in the Premier League this season so Liverpool might be a good example of that with Trent Alexander-Arnold coming inside and I think that's largely been prompted by defensive principles uh, similar to the ones we've been talking about. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people view rest defense as like those who are aware of it uh, view it as sort of ancillary and 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 secondary to chance creation. Uh, and I think what's key and and the reason this is relevant to to City and Pep is that they're actually two sides of the same coin. Uh, in that the decisions you make to score goals are going to affect how you carry out your rest defense and the decisions you make in order to carry out your rest defense are going to affect how you score goals. And so that's why I think Holland is actually so relevant to how city engage in rest defense. And, and John, I think you, you said this in, in more words, but when you have a player who's that dynamic, you can be more conservative otherwise and still have the same thrust going forward. Um, and I think that, elite talent paired with an awareness of how to use that elite talent is what made City so good. Uh, and so you can talk about United, you can talk about how United do their rest defense, but ultimately the, and I think this is actually relevant in the context of the Stones role that you talked about. I think a lot of fans of other clubs talking about, oh, who would be our Stones? Who, who can play that role and invert and do that for us? When the reality is, it's almost never about how you can imitate the top side in terms of doing things exactly the same way. It's more about understanding the principles behind why the top sides are doing the things they're doing and trying to adopt those principles with the personnel you have or trying to get the personnel you need to adopt those principles. And I think when we talk about rest defense today in the context of United, that's something we should keep in mind and and it's something we can actually learn from City, which I... I I know it sounds counterintuitive. It sounds like I'm saying don't take directly from City, but I, I think it just. I would say instead take the broad strokes, take the the lessons as opposed to the structures. I think when it comes to Man United as well, it's it's worth saying that you mentioned that um, case that Holland, when you have that more conservative structure. Uh, with a player like Holland, obviously you're getting the benefit of if he's going to be a high turnover kind of player, you've got the, the the ability to cover, but he's also an attacking upside, which is he's really dangerous as an individual. And so you don't need to force players forward. And I think that's something really important to think about with Manchester United, because I think this season, if you are a team who are going to be playing counter-attacking football or fairly transitional football, um, whether or not that is... Uh, 
traditional uh, transition or artificial transition. Again, the benefit you get from that is that if you have players who can play that way, then you can be more conservative with your rest defence so that you aren't giving up goals. And I think that's a big part of Manchester United's use of rest defence this season. It's allowed them to be maybe a little bit more conservative in certain phases of play. Um, not concede as many goals as they might have done. And as a result of that, they've they've still got the, the attacking players to not commit players forward and still be dangerous. So I think that's a really important angle on it. Yeah, and another thing is you said, you talked about Holland in the context of an elite player, but I also think it's really important to the discussion that he's a natural striker. Um, he's a He's a big striker that creates a focal point for Man City as a team. And I think that makes a lot of things easier for them in terms of building towards and and around a striker. It allows you options in terms of how you're going to connect the side, gives you a focal point that you're playing around, and it means you're constantly occupying the last line and the, and the center backs, even in phases where you're not committing a ton of players forward. Um, and I do think that's something that's important to Eric Ten Hag as a coach. Like we we hear all of this news about Ten Hag being linked with you know traditional. Uh, very big target man, number nine strikers. We saw Sebastian Allaire playing for Ajax. Um, I really do think that is partially with rest defensive considerations in mind um, and partially a caveat of what United are able to do from this perspective because quite often United didn't have that level of focal point um, in attack and therefore needed to commit more players forward to sustain a level of threat. Um, and so in a way... Either they have to make a choice between being quite defensive and risking not breaking down other teams, or they have to commit more players forward and compromise rest defense. And so my point is that I think a striker would definitely change a lot of uh, of what we're about to talk about with respect to what United kind of did before and after Ten Hag arrived at the club. With that in mind, let's talk about United's rest defense then, right? Cool, yeah. So, I mean, I think we had some level of uncertainty, mostly based on the fact that I think United's rest defense is quite match-dependent. So maybe what we can do is give an overview of generally what United might look to do against a back four uh, opposition with with a 4-2-3-1 formation, and how they might look to cover, you know, the the wingers, the striker, and the attacking midfielder in a formation like that. Case, do you want to take that one? Sure. So we watched a few matches where you saw this this opposition shape. And I think the key thing, the place to start is with how United's center backs behave. Because I think this is sort of the most intuitive thing for the average football fan. Center backs, even when in possession, have defensive responsibilities. I think so that's sort of a an obvious statement. But given that I think we're going to expand that statement, it's important to start there. The way United's center backs behave when the opposition when they have the ball in the opposition half, which is really when rest defense becomes relevant, is against a one-striker system. Against a one-striker system, overwhelmingly you're going to see one of the center backs man marking the opposition striker and the other the other center back in sort of a, a libero role where they're deeper and in, in and have zonal responsibility. Uh, and the two of them will sort of hand off the striker over the course of the match, depending on where the striker is. Um, yeah, I think that that's the basis. That is that is where all rest defense in the context of United cascades from. I was just going to say, and you you're talking about the centre backs passing the striker on. Actually, one of the situations where that can happen is that 
uh, a centre-back might have the responsibility to be a relay player. Because obviously when we're talking about rest defence, it's when the team who are rest defending have the ball. And so uh, in certain situations, a team will be building up on one side of the field. And if that happens, you want to make sure that that team doesn't get squeezed against that side of the field the team in possession so that they can't move the ball back to the other side so what a lot of teams use is what we call a relay player which is usually a center back or maybe a fullback who can drop in offer a really safe pass backwards and then shift possession to the other side so what we see a lot of happening with Manchester United I think is that you have the two um, center backs in a certain situation where they're both keeping an eye on where the striker is and if the ball is on one side of the field the closest centre-back has the responsibility to offer that relay position, so showing for a pass backwards. Uh, and that means if that does happen, then the far-sided centre-back has to step up onto the uh, opposition striker to make sure they don't have space. So I think this is a really nice way of, uh, again, understanding that in every situation that we're going to talk about when we're talking about rest defence is that it's not that you're saying one player has you know, a possessional uh, responsibility another player has a uh, defensive responsibility often these things overlap and so there's certain situations where you're, you're kind of asking yourself well why is that player doing that is it a defensively motivated movement you know it could be the center of midfield the dropping between the line for, for example uh, but actually what we're going to start finding out is that you know players have to have both of these ideas in their head at the same time and what we've been looking for is a set of principles or criteria that seems as though that the Manchester United players adhere to in order to make sure that they're keeping enough cover defensively when they're doing their build-up play or their, uh, their, their attacking play as well. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point in particular because I think it's not intuitive for, you know, the average fans to, to hear, to hear somebody say, oh, actually half of the players on the pitch when they have the ball are playing defense. And that's just not a true statement, right? At any given point, every player is in a way a passing option or about to become a passing option. It's just that in the moments when they aren't immediately, you know, the most immediate passing options, they also have defensive considerations depending on the position. So with that in mind, I think we can sort of move forward into the the less uh, intuitive parts of United's rest defense. So you have your center backs against a, an opposition lone striker. One of them is man marking, the other is uh, acting as a relay player and as a you know a zonal uh, defensive player. You move forward to United's midfield three. For the most part, Bruno Fernandez is not a part of this equation. There are moments during the match where he might rotate and and start to take on some defensive responsibilities. But in general, he is free of responsibility. He's allowed to sort of do what he wants. Um, So when we have this conversation, we're kind of going to exclude him. He's on the pitch. He hasn't gone anywhere, but he's not key to this discussion because of his role in the team. So that leaves you with, generally speaking, Christian Eriksen this past season and Casemiro. In some moments, this looks more like a single pivot, others a double pivot. We've talked about that before on this podcast. In the context of rest defense, it doesn't get that much clearer because there are moments where you're going to see Casemiro really look like a single pivot, where he's going to be responsible for the next most advanced attacking player on the opposition when United have the ball. So if it's a 4-2-3-1, that'll be the opposition 10, the opposition attacking midfielder. If it's a 4-4-2, that'll be the opposition's other striker in a lot of instances. 
when it's a an opposition front three, a true front three, the conversation becomes different. But we'll get to that in a little bit. So you have this theoretical single pivot. The thing is, it's a little more complicated than that in reality because there are moments in the match where, just as we just talked about, it's more intuitive for Casemiro to become a passing option, to become a part of the attacking play. And those are the moments where you'll often see Christian Eriksen rotate onto the opposition secondary attacking option and become a part of the rest defense more traditionally. So what you really have here is sort of a central diamond of two center backs and a deeper midfielder, typically Casemiro. And that forms the, the true basis for your rest defense. These are the players who are primary, primarily responsible for slowing down and stopping counterattacks should they occur. Yeah, and I wanted to add there that you talked about the rotation between Casemiro and Eriksen. And a lot of the time, the impression that I get when watching Manchester United's rest defence is that there have to be certain cr- cr- uh, criteria in place in order for players to make certain decisions in possession. So you mentioned that Casemiro often becoming a box threat. So like, there was an example from a game, I think it was against Crystal Palace that we were watching, where Bruno Fernandes picks up the ball in the half space. He's going to try and cross the ball into the box. That means that you want to try and get certain players in the box into heading goal-scoring positions. Casemiro obviously very good at that. So that's a trigger for Casemiro to get forward, which means that there has to be a corresponding movement from Eriksen the other way as well. So what we're starting to see then is certain conditions have to be in place in order for these rotations to take place. Actually, what happened in that game is that the ball was played by Bruno into the feet of Ericsson. And then you could see immediately Casemiro recognising that some of the criteria that were in place for him to step forward weren't being met. So he had to get back as quickly as he could. Uh, It ended up in a transitional moment. Manchester United were able to defend, but you can see those sorts of things happening. So when we're talking about rest defence, rest defensive principles, I think it's really important to remember that what we need to think of in terms of uh, what the players are thinking on the field is a series of uh, of as I've said, criteria or principles that they're running through being like, if this is the case, if this player is here, that allows me to go forward. So another good example of this is the is the, the fullbacks. Often the fullbacks are responding to their opposite number. So, for example, if Aaron Wan-Bissaka and Luke Shaw are playing, if Aaron Wan-Bissaka is higher up the field, then Luke Shaw isn't really allowed to, to go forward in certain in certain rest defensive systems uh, and vice versa. And the, uh, the idea there is obvious, right? You don't want to push both of your fullbacks forward because that can leave you exposed. So I think that it's really important to remember, because it's very easy, I think, for us to talk about things tactically and try and reduce everything down to structure and say, you know, there's a 2-3 structure here or a 3-2 structure here. Um, let's just talk about, let's just talk about it in a, in a very um, snapshot, um, st- static way, when actually I think what's happening is largely dynamic. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, a coach is on the field telling his players what to do, and that needs to be simple and, um, and heuristic. It has to be, that these have to be obvious, you know, either or situations that the players can run through in their heads and say, is this the case? Is this player back? Therefore, can I go forward? Is is this player going forward? Do I need to drop back? So I think it's really important to remember that as well, because otherwise you can overcomplicate things and maybe miss the force of what's going on. I totally agree with that. I think in particular, what you brought up about the fullbacks is, is a really good example. It Actually, both of them were great examples. I, I think the the instance of Casemiro is, is important because it sort of goes to show why... In the context of rest defense, words like holding midfielder and 
eight and attacking midfielder sort of cease to have meaning in some instances because depending on the phase of play and depending on where certain players are on the pitch, other players are going to behave differently. Their, their role is going to change depending on the behaviors of other players, not just match to match, but within a match. Um, and I think rest defense is like a really great way to understand that. So then on the, on, on the, the topic of the fullbacks, I think the fullbacks are probably um, the most interesting aspect of the United's rest defense and probably any size rest defense really, because there's this general conception, I think, in modern football and in, in possession-based football that it used to be that the fullbacks overlapped and now the fullbacks are, because of Guardiola, I think I would say, inverting um, they're a part of interior play. They're, they you know help over, create overloads in the midfield, uh, and, and that's how they play. But I would say the way United play, it's highly dependent on, the, or rather the two fullbacks are highly dependent on one another and the opposition, not just for how they defend, but for how they attack. Um, so to, to give an example of that, you'll often see you know, you have this central unit, and you're right. I, I, I don't think the using words like 3-2 and 2-3 and are, are, are useful in this instance. But you have this central unit of three players, typically. Your deepest midfielder, your two center backs. You won't typically see, you almost never see, really, those three players isolated and all of United's other players push forward. You'll typically see one of the two fullbacks forming a back three. And you would think that is arbitrary, but the reality of it is they're kind of acting like levers. Uh, and you, if one fullback goes up, like you said, another fullback comes back. And this isn't simply, uh, this isn't rehearsed uh, in the way that it's like, oh, between minutes 15 and 20, this player will go forward. And between minutes 20 and 25, this player will go forward. It's a negotiation. It's, it's, and it's also relative to the ball. So if... Let's say Rafael Varane has the ball on the right side. Aaron Wan-Bissaka is high up the pitch. Uh, Victor Lindelof or Lisandro Martinez, whoever's partnering, partnering Varane, is beside him. And there's a big vacant space deep on the left side of the pitch. Luke Shaw is going to drop back there for a few reasons. Um, primarily, it's going to be to offer for the ball to create an outlet onto that left side. But it's also going to be to allow United to have the, the minimal width in their rest defense in the case of a ball loss that allows them to cover the full pitch. So not only is it possession-based, this is a great example of where the possession-based aspects are also rest defense. And, and you can't untie the two. They are the same thing. Yeah, and I would also add that there are the situations where, you know, we talk about this a lot with these top teams they're using the fullbacks in midfield in possession. Um, and so you'll have situations where, you know, United... Um, a, a great example is Casemiro's bicycle kick against Nottingham Forest, um, where you're going to see Casemiro, who typically, like we said, will have a, a core rest defensive responsibility. Um, and what he's actually going to do is he's gradually going to get into a better position to make the run, not because he initially sees that he can make that run to score, uh, but because he can, uh, based on United's shape, pass off the man that he's responsible for marking uh, to Aaron Wambasaka. And so then Wambasaka is actually fulfilling a man-marking responsibility in midfield. 
And then Casemiro's cuter run is going to be when he sees Erickson dropping back as well uh, to get on the ball. And I believe Bruno's also very aware of the rest defense in that scenario. Um, and I think that's also goes to illustrate how complex the roles can be, I'd say in particular for fullbacks. Um, in the modern era, you have fullbacks who are going to be overlapping, underlapping, coming into midfield, or even joining the center backs in buildup. And I would say almost all of those actions are very logically explainable um, in good teams if you can if you slow down the tape and, and take a closer look. Yeah. On the subject of fullbacks, I think the fullback position is ma- most interesting because I think the fullback position of all of the positions in the rest defensive unit is the one that's most determined by the opposition's behaviours. Um, and I think there's two things there that are worth noting, one of which is the height that the opposition are going to play with their wide players. Um, so for example we watched a Bournemouth game where Bournemouth were largely defending in two banks of four and their wingers weren't getting forward very often and so Manchester United were often very happy to push their fullbacks uh, both at the same time in the, in, the, in that game so there's an example of a a game where the, the two fullbacks were, were sort of given a little bit more leeway than you might have seen in other games uh, but the other thing as well I think that is worth taking into account is how conservative Eric Ten Hag wants Manchester United to play in certain games so again we watched an Arsenal game which is obviously going to be one of the most difficult games that that Manchester United are going to play in the season and in those in that system the 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 rest defense approach was was much more conservative with with fullbacks another good example actually which is maybe in between these two is the Nottingham Forest game that you mentioned Aaron because Nottingham Forest play in a 3-5-2 shape with Morgan Gibbs White as a 10 and then two strikers one of which is Tyro Awani who's a and out and out number nine. Uh, they play with Brennan Johnson as well as a sort of stack, second striker who can drift out wide in, in, into the, particularly into the right hand side for for Forest. And the way that Manchester United dealt with that was quite interesting because they they did adopt, I thought, a fairly structured approach there. So they had the two centre backs as the as the deepest line uh, of of defence, and then they had the two full backs inverting uh, around Casemiro and. Um, Casemiro's job was to largely just track Morgan Gibbs White, and then the two centre backs were tracking Tyro Awani as the as the sort of out and out striker. And then what we saw was a, a bit more of a zonal approach to Brennan Johnson. So if uh, Brennan Johnson drifted out to the right hand side, um, uh, Diogo Dalot was playing as a as the the left back nominally, uh, and so he would take up the marking responsibility there. But there was uh, lots of flexibility so that the the back line could move around depending on how. Um, how fluid the, the 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 Nottingham Forest front line was. So that's another good example of I think the the fact that the rest defence approach in every game I think we saw was determined in certain ways and and to certain extents by the opposition as well. Yeah, I mean you have Nottingham Forest playing a really strict front three, but you also have I think their three best players, and I think there are a lot of talent considerations that go on here. Um, in particular, the thing you said about Dalo coming to mark Brennan Johnson when he's out wide. I think if you watch that match really closely, you can actually see situations where Lindelof feels... Uh, Victor Lindelof is a left center back, and he feels that uh, Johnson is pulling out too wide for him to be reasonably dragged. So he'll actually call Dalo to come in and cover for Brennan Johnson in that event. Um, and similarly, you can see the same thing against Spurs in that big 2-0 uh, home win where United pretty much have their center backs, Lissandro and Varane in that match, go man-to-man with Son and Kane and mark them quite tightly. But then you have the fullbacks take much more, I would say, disciplined and defensive roles um, in that they 
pretty much don't abandon Casemiro in defense midfield at all unless another midfielder is dropping in to cover for them. Um, and what that allows you to do is in the event that Spurs win the ball back and try to go really vertical in transition, um, you're going to have someone who can zonally drop back to support in the marking of both Kane and Son um, and prevent them from ge- prevent them from getting into space where they can really create chances. So, yeah, I also think it, it's it's easy to have these like core principles that I think we've seen across all the matches that United have. But I also think there's a huge element of um, looking at the ways the opposition are likely to hurt you and then assigning both uh, a number of players and a configuration uh, to deal with the threats that you think they pose individually. I I was just going to say, I, I was quite interested by how often teams that we were watching and this goes for teams i think on both sides of the of the watch um would would go player for player with their marking responsibilities in possession so there's the situations where you'll see i mean we watched i mentioned the arsenal game uh, the situations where manchester united uh, are are defending but you'll see ben white for example as the right back for arsenal making sure that he's tight to marcus rashford on that side even though Arsenal have the ball so I think a lot of teams now thinking very much in terms of yes we have the ball now but if the ball is turned over and it can be turned over quickly and at this level you're going to get really really punished by certain players not least Marcus Rashford one of the best transition players in the world and that really struck me actually that I hadn't really even considered that you know a rest defense could be as simple as man marking in possession which seems completely counterintuitive in many respects as well. Yeah, and I think, yeah, totally agree with that. I also think this is a good moment for us to touch on how United are different from where how they were previously. Because I agree, I was struck by the man marking in possession. Uh, that, Like you said, it just sounds so counterintuitive. It, it seems to go against everything we know about the game, um, or at least we think we know about the game. With that in mind... If you go back to Ali Gunnar Solskjaer, and I don't want to dwell on this too much, um, just because the guys, I don't think that... the guys forced me to watch Ali Gunnar Solskjaer's rest defense, so I'm here yeah. against my will. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we thought it would be productive to take a look at how United behaved in possession under Solskjaer to sort of contrast it with how they do now. I have to say, and I'm, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but I think if you watch, if you go back and watch, and I think we watched a few, ma- we, Aaron and I have watched a few matches in, in the case of John, we, we only <laughs> were able to get through uh, part <laughs> of one. Uh, but I think the main takeaway is I think Solskjaer views the game very differently from how a lot of these, you know, Arteta, um, Guardiola, even Klopp view them, view the game. And that comes down to, even how the sides behave in possession. So if you look at how Solstar's side defended in possession, you you often saw a two center backs very 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 deep away from play, really not factoring into play at all, acting sort of like both as safety valves. There wasn't individual responsibility for the opposition striker, for example, and then one player deep as a relay man. It was these are our two 
defenders and they are in defensive positions very far away from play. They're, they weren't really in a space to disrupt a, a counterattack. They were in a space to fall into a defensive shape should a counterattack occur. You saw those two. Then you sort of saw the rest, the, the other eight outfielders configured in possession, uh, with, with possession in mind. And, and that was really the only thing in mind that you could that you could see. And again, we're doing this based on what we can see. We can't say what the instructions were, but there you saw a ton of positional freedom. For instance, you under United currently, you'll see if a fullback's going to make an overlapping run, he's looking for cover first. Whereas previously under Solskjaer, you could see a fullback making an attacking run simply because he saw the opportunity. Uh, and that actually... I think to a lot of people that doesn't seem bad, right? That seems like, oh, fullback sees an opportunity, should take an opportunity. That's how any player should should play. And I think that's reflected in sort of Solstro's comments about the side, how he wants them to be brave, how he wants them to take initiative, be creative, express themselves. But I think that falters when you realize that the other top managers in the game are having their players mark opposition players while you ha- while they have the ball. The, the level of discipline and sophistication that's being brought to defensive play while, while in possession. And then when you contrast that with the approach that was being taken, you can see how there was an, uh, an easy jump to be made simply by starting to imitate these other sides. Um, yeah. Uh, Aaron, you have yeah. anything to add there? Yeah. Kind of summarizing what you said and hopefully adding a little bit, I I think there were three main things that really stood out to me watching uh, what I watched of Solskjaer's United and and recall of them in rest defense as a whole. Um, The first, perhaps being the least, uh, I would say, attributable uh, attributable to Solskjaer, which was uh, the lack of attacking focal point in the center of the pitch. So what you're often going to see is you have players like Anthony Martial um, and they're playing striker. And they don't consistently occupy the last line. So instead, what you have is this kind of clump of rotating uh, inside forwards and striker and Bruno um, getting in that box area and congesting it in in ways that if the spacing was coached effectively, I think one or two players could do. Um, and I think that while it, it sounds like it's something that Solskjaer should have fixed, and I think it is. Um, I also think it has to do with United not really having a clear striker who who commanded that role in the team. I think a lot of what Solskjaer did was planning around the players he had, and that was kind of the just natural solution to what he saw in those players and what their freer roles uh, led to them doing on the pitch. Um, the second thing was, I think when we talked about Ten Hag's side, we, there was a clear... Um, balance between one member of United's double pivot being uh, a man-oriented rest defender. So usually Casemiro, who you have marking a man, and then another one who you have zonal, and they're kind of free, and they're going to they're gonna run a little bit more, and they can create space and show for the ball. Whereas I think under Solskjaer, you saw very often a double pivot that was very lockstep in its movement. They're going to they're going to stick together and they're going to move up and down the pitch together um, and not particularly take zonal or man-oriented responsibilities, but instead look to just, I, I guess it would be zonal, but cover in the event of a counter, be there um, in front of the opposition to address whatever situation that, that came to them. 
Um, and then the third thing, which Case pointed out really explicitly, was that the center backs were then really far from that double pivot. So often you would get into a situation where, you know, United lose the ball in front of, whether it was Fred and McTominay, Fred and Pogba, Matic and Pogba, they lose the ball in front of those guys. And then you have these two lines that are quite far away from each other that are tasked with dealing with these defensive transitions. And it just meant that your midfielders were working in acres of space, regardless of their dysfunctionalities. And then when the midfield was inevitably broken, the center backs had way too much work to do. Um, And so it was not just the configuration of players or the formation, because on the surface of things, it's a 2-2, and United often do a 2-2 under Ten Hag. But it was specifically the assignments of those players to deal with the opposition, as well as the spacing between those lines uh, that was easier for the opposition to exploit than United shape under Ten Hag. Yeah, I agree with that. I think you can basically, to you simplify what I said, I think you can simplify it even further. It's The, the key difference is the distance between your midfielders and your center backs and the behavior of the fullbacks in supporting that central midfield center back unit. Um, yeah, and, and ultimately what you wind up with is a current product that is far more compact and behaves in a far more rehearsed manner than what you had a year and a half ago. And I think that that is the, the key difference in explaining the improvement in performances. I really, I don't think this rest defensive thing is, you know, just a piece of trivia. I really do think if you wanted to point out what were the key changes that you saw under United this past season, this is one of them. This is a huge difference in terms of the tactical sophistication of the side. Yeah, I would... I would, I would agree with that. And I think that there's a tendency for people to say, oh, you know, Eric Ten Hag plays counter-attacking football. Uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer played counter-attacking football. Therefore, these are the same. This is the same football, which I think is just patently wrong on so many levels. And, you know, I've been as guilty of being tongue-in-cheek and, and teasing you guys by saying that. But a lot of the time, the thing that I've emphasised is the difference between... Uh, Ten Hag and Solskjaer is the ability to control the ball out of possession but I think having spent the time to watch a lot of tape looking at these rest defence moments that I'm absolutely convinced that the biggest change that that Ten Hag has made has been introducing these ideas especially when you compare them to what was not happening under, um, under Solskjaer as well so yeah I think this is a huge aspect of what Eric Ten Hag's football is all about and I completely understand now why in almost every press conference I seem to have listened where he speaks he seems to mention rest defense in some way because it's a big underpinning of the counter-attacking football that he wants to play I think yeah I mean the three of us talked about pressing multiple times this season and United's pressing but a lot of it comes from this rest defense as a preparation to be able to press out of that shape right um What I described under Solskjaer is already a problematic situation for a team that wants to press really high because what you're going to have is if your center backs are a lot deeper than your midfielders, you're going to create an out ball for the opposition that's not offside, first of all. Second of all, if your midfield pivot 
um, is currently trying to deal with an entire mess in front of them, they're not going to be able to press within any arrangements. And then thirdly, if the positioning of your fullbacks is not consistent defensively, at moments when you lose the ball, there's going to be a variable amount of space available in wide areas for the opponent to go to. So you're giving them multiple out balls that they can play the second they win the ball. Um, and the better the team, the more likely they are to exploit that. Whereas under Ten Hag, if you have these principles that ensure that you always have a certain amount of players back and in a specific coordination that is um, aimed to both prevent balls out to their best players and prevent balls out in general, you're going to be able to more effectively press out of that shape. You're going to force the opposition to settle into possession a little bit more in deep areas, and you're going to be able to press them in deep buildup, um, which then again creates more chances and improves your defense. It's th- This is super important to you know, giving yourself advantages in key phases of play um, that are defining what the top teams do uh, at the top level. So, yeah. And to, to go again off of what you said, I think I said something to this effect when we were on the TIFO podcast. Um, what is the deal with the release dates? Are we going to be releasing on the same day? <laughs> this is first. Be- this is on Monday, I think, and TIFO is next Monday. Okay. So you'll hear us in the future on the TIFO podcast, and you'll hear me say something uh, that I, I think I came up with sort of on the spot, but I think actually reflects the the change in in how United played pretty well this past season. United were very coordinated and I think playing at a high level when they had the ball in the opposition half and when the opposition had the ball in United's half. I think it where United can improve this coming season is how they play when they have the ball in their own half and how they play when the opposition have the ball in the opposition's half. The reason I bring this up in this context is to John's point about a lot of people say, what's the difference between how United are playing now and how United played under Solskjaer? And people say, oh, it's just transitional football. What's the difference? The difference is United were very coherent this past season when they defended in their own half and when they attacked in the opposition half. And that wasn't true previously. Anything else? Or I can move to our last topic here. Anything else you want to add in? Okay. Um, I'm going to use a a word that I don't think John is a fan of. We're going to talk a little bit about personnel. Um, (laughs) And specifically United players. Uh, Ten Hag had a quote that I thought was really interesting. He said, The angles are not good if Harry is playing on the left side. It's difficult for him, but I think he's more capable on the right. Victor can use both feet very good. And I think he did a brilliant job in defense and in transition from Johnson. So that is why we prefer to do it with them in this way. So that's going back to the Nottingham Forest match again. um, And specifically why Lindelof plays on the left side of defense and Maguire plays on the right side of defense this season. um, Which Ten Hag mainly attributed to rest defense when he was asked about it. Um, United have also obviously added a lot of defensive personnel in this last season. Um, the key ones being Lissandro Martinez and Casemiro. And I think we've also seen a lot more Varane minutes than we did in that last season under Solskjaer. Case, how big do you think that is in um, both informing the rest defensive tactics that United look to play uh, and also in being able to deploy those tactics effectively? Just to clarify the question, how important do I think the center-back personnel and their footedness is in how United play rest defense? Specifically the talent that you have available. How much in defensive areas, how much do you think that that informs 
uh, decisions to play rest defensively in certain ways. So one thing you might see, for example, is people say a defensive midfielder is bad. So we might add an extra defensive midfielder uh, for added defensive coverage. What do you think about assertions like that and how they bear out with United now having, I would say, elite defensive quality versus in past seasons where they did not? I think this is less relevant in the context of rest defense than it is in the context of settled defense um, and transition defense, which would be, I guess, the moments immediately after rest defense, um, which perhaps are, are the same thing, but I'll, I'll clarify. There is no excuse for a bad defensive player to make mistakes in rest defense because what rest defense is, is decision-making at a basic level. It's about being in the right spaces, really when you there's no urgency to be in those places. Uh, it's about anticipation. Uh, and so this is something that should be coachable and, and, and really any player should be capable of. You or I should be able to go on a Premier League pitch and do some of the things that we see United players doing in rest defense. Where that immediately becomes untrue is the moments immediately after rest defense when United lose the ball or any side loses the ball and you break into transition. And that's when physical attributes and defensive quality become relevant. And that's where I think you maybe see Casemiro make a big difference over Fred. Um, or, or let's say Mason Mount make a big difference over Erickson this coming season. Or Lisandro Martinez make a big difference over Harry Maguire in, open, in the open field. Um, that said... I think those things make a smaller difference than being coherent in rest defense in the moments before transition occurs. So if I had to pick between the defensive quality United have now, disorganized, playing sort of in the way, engaging in rest defense in the way they did under Solskjaer, or to have the out-of-possession quality that United had, whatever you would perceive to be their nadir in that uh, context. So let's say... When it was, I'm, I'm picking names and this is not me making quality judgments, but let's say when it's Alex Tillis and um, Fred and Nemanja Matic uh, past his prime and Harry Maguire, um, whoever it may be, I would rather have those players playing coherent, playing with coherent rest defensive principles than I would United's current players playing incoherent, playing with incoherent principles. Does that make sense? Go ahead, John. I have a question for you two, because I think essentially the thing that stuck out for me watching Manchester United play rest events has been quite how conservative they are. And I talked about this at the beginning, that if you're able to be conservative, but you have really good transitional players, you're, you're sort of getting the best of both worlds, right? Because you don't need to commit a huge amount of players forward in order to be dangerous in transition if you have the right players to play that kind of game. Now, that's all well and good for Manchester United in their current iteration. But I wonder whether or not you think there's situations where they are too conservative now and that has a, a very obvious ceiling. Because I think we're focusing on the positive upside that you get from Eric Ten Hag's rest defence. And I think that that is obviously the big takeaway that we should have here, that that Manchester United have improved under him because of these these principles. But to what extent do you feel as though they are too conservative and there are areas where you can improve? And I'll, I'll give you one concrete example of where this is the case. And this is something we've talked about a lot this season. And that is in the out of possession phase, in the high press, 
you don't commit your fullbacks high when the opposition have a weak player on the far side. So what I mean by that is that in Manchester United have a front three press, they press up against a back when they're pressing up against a back four. That means you're always going to have the potential of having a numerical uh, inferiority as Manchester United pressing. So what happens is that they try and force the ball on one one side and have the weakness on the other and make it very hard for the ball to be played back to the free fullback uh, for the opposition. Now, in certain situations, that's just unavoidable and it happens. And a lot of elite teams who play that way will then jump their fullback onto the opposition fullback, which is obviously very aggressive. And we've talked a lot about why that wasn't the case. And I think that some of the stuff we've been talking about today gives us an explanation for why that might be the case, Um, especially if there are fullbacks tight on uh, opposition wide forwards and not wanting to jump up and lose that player and, and, I guess, sacrifice some rest defensive integrity so that that there's a lot of um there's a lot of uh angles to that question but yeah the 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 overall idea is do you think that this is too conservative i.e do you think that this is so conservative that your forward line despite the fact they are very good at playing transitional football will never actually be able to um compete at the highest level in the premier league if they are to remain this conservative yeah so i think the in the question about the press specifically, I think, yes, there is a decent chance that the way United pressed this past season will not provide the necessary upside for United to win the league regardless of personnel. I think that is a possibility. However, I think there's still so much upside left to be had without changing the press by simply getting an elite level attacker into this side that... I'm not super confident in answering that question positively or negatively until you see that. Because I do still think if you compare United's front three to other front threes across the Premier League, especially the sides that are supposed to be winning the league, um, it does not compare favorably at present. Uh, And I think that is, you know, at the end of the day, this sounds, it's so funny to have a conversation about rest defense, which is such a uh, nebulous, I think, unfamiliar principle for, uh, unfamiliar concept for a lot of football fans. And then to, to get to this point in the podcast where I say, at the end of the day, great footballers win you matches. And I think great attacking footballers do so more than any. Um, and I think United lack that. So I'm going to deflect really hard. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Aaron um, has a better answer for you. Yeah, a couple things here. For one is I think something we've talked about a lot this season in the context of other phases, like in or, or the same phase but other approaches, specifically in possession, is uh, the trade off between taking a lot of risks uh, and how the trade offs change depending on the scoreline, and how uh, in particular I think Case and I both have had issues with how United have um, approached matches with their in possession decisions. Um, especially in points where they're winning. Um, and so I think what you might see eventually is United against select opposition where they really feel they should be winning and can contain their attacking threat begin to be more comfortable with, uh, with committing more men forward and having less uh, players who occupy those zonal responsibilities uh, outside the direct man marking for the rest defensive system um, such that you have more cover in the event that you lose the ball. So in particular, the big example is I think you want to see United's fullbacks be a little bit more involved in certain attacking points um, in even or in losing game states 
uh, to help you create more chances. Um, but by and large, I don't know if that's going to be a huge change in, in over the course of the season. Like I think in most cases, you're either going to be, you're going to spend a lot of your time either winning matches, playing teams who you perceive as really big attacking threats. Um, I like, I don't think it's, it's going to be a super common thing. So the other thing I will say is I think the addition of Andre Onana could change a couple things. Um, this is one thing I was thinking about watching United, particularly in deep buildup here where you had the fullbacks joining the back three and the other fullback going beyond. Um, I do think that is a rest defensive decision, but I also think it's very much a buildup decision. You're getting the fullbacks in the back three to create uh, a level of width that's not actually possible with two players, especially given David De Gea's ability on the ball. And so I think the deeper you see United, the more likely you are to have a player like Andre Onana actually joining the back three. Um, and then you're able to do a little bit more with your fullbacks, whether that's moving them into midfield to try and break lines uh, or moving them in wide areas to get your other players inside the pitch um, and essentially create more numerical overloads and build up. Um, and so essentially what you're doing is you're maintaining the rest defensive structure or rest defensive ability while being able to commit more players forward. And I think a, a more proactive, better goalkeeper is something that could enable that. Yeah, and, and the last thing I'll add on here is in the context of tagging upside, I think one of the easiest things that United can do in the coming season uh, to just get significantly better across the board is be better at set pieces uh, and create more from set pieces. And, you know, this isn't really, I don't know where this fits in in the context of this conversation, but Arsenal, for example, who I think you can fairly say title challenged this past season without, I would say, having really, really high-end attackers, did so on the strength of being one of the best attacking set-piece sides in the league. I think United need to get there because there's, I think there's always going to be a certain talent gap between them and City, given just the institution that City is now. Um, and, and that's how you make up those differences. So I'll toss that in there too. Great. Yeah, maybe we could do like a quick summary. I don't know, a TLDR? TLDL, I guess. Too, too long, didn't listen. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> rest defense is increasingly important in the modern game. Eric Ten Hag is a manager who, based on his press conferences and everything we know about him, seems a lot more predisposed to prioritize rest defense as a key consideration when his teams have possession of the ball. United adopt a number of different approaches to rest defense, most of which include having center backs and a combination of midfielders and fullbacks devoted to defensive responsibilities, both based on man marking, opposition difficulty, um, and the need to score goals in different games. Overall, I think you might see that United's rest defensive approach is quite conservative, but in the future, we might see uh, changes as Eric Ten Hag is able to get more personnel, in particular elite attacking talent and an elite goalkeeper, in order to change how United are able to build out of the back in relation to that. John, any final thoughts before we wrap this up? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think I would recommend that people try and get hold of some tactical footage and watch teams doing rest defense because it's almost impossible to be able to do that without... Um, I realise that in that respect we are privileged and that we can get hold of this stuff. Um, I would also reiterate that a lot of what we're doing here is is speculative and as I pointed out during the, the podcast, 
what is happening when rest defense happens is that players are running through checklists of criteria um, and and fulfilling what the coach has asked them to do individually for their role. So I think it's important to remember that that we're not just talking about structures here. We're talking about uh, a series of, um, I, I guess, boolean uh, instructions where 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 players are having to think their way through what's going on in the pitch. And I think that certainly is a useful way of thinking about what's going on but I've thoroughly enjoyed spending time actually doing some thinking about rest defense because I've not ever sat down and really tried to force myself to work out what a team are doing Um, and I feel as though I understand football better for having done that Um, certainly the modern the modern game Um, and it yeah it's very much changed the, the way that I see um, football. So I would very much recommend people go out there and, and ha- try and find some tactical cam footage, uh, try and see what's going on when an opposition, um, when a team are, are, are building up against an opposition with their rest defence. Um, and yeah, hopefully this inspires people to go go out there and, and find out a little bit more about rest defence, which I I think is like a, it's a cool principle because everyone loves to say rest defence, but actually when it comes down to it, it's a very dry aspect of the game. Um, and I've just been amazed at how um, much brighter it made me feel about what is going on when when a team are building up sorry when a team are building up using those kind of principles as well all right so yeah we hope you guys are interested in rest defense and you found this interesting uh john is joining us from a little known podcast called tifo football that i think you guys should check out i'm just kidding i know you guys already all know about tifo and john so thank you again john for joining us and next week we've got a special episode I think we're also supposed to be on TIFO Football, which is scheduled for next week. And at the same time, we have a special coming out about Mason Mount and Andre Onano with two special guests. So stay tuned and have a great week, guys. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details. You can follow us at Devils ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Hanks. Uh, That was good, guys. I think that was really good.